our studies in John's Gospel, I thought I would touch on a couple of things in the fourth chapter because it relates to what we're going to be studying in the fifth chapter. Um, the title of this message is Physical and Spiritual Healing. Physical and Spiritual Healing. Uh, many years ago, as a result of the teaching in this church, it began to dawn on me that all of the physical healings in the Bible uh, really uh, illustrate and point to the ultimate reason that the Lord went to the cross of Calvary, and it was not to heal our bodies. That is not the main thing. It's not the main message of the Bible. The fall of man did not really have to do with the flesh. A lot of people get confused about this because in the New Testament, we're given continual warnings about the flesh, but the flesh is symbolic, really, of something that's much deeper than flesh and bones. It's uh, it, the target of the flesh is the spirit in man. It's the nature that is in man. That's the problem. The flesh in and of itself is like a, a gun that is neither good nor evil in and of itself. It doesn't do anything. It's what's it's, it's the hand that picks up the gun that is really the evil part. And it's the spirit that is in this body that is going to use the body to do good or evil. And so the focus is not that the problem is external. It's not. The problem is internal. The body is like a glove that is absolutely useless until you put a hand in it. But it's the hand that goes in it that uh, causes the glove to fulfill its purpose. And it's the same way with these bodies of ours. The target of Scripture is the sin nature, which is invisible. It has to do with our thought life. It has to do with a spirit that has rebelled against God. And the spirit is invisible. It's not physical. It's invisible. And so when you study the book of Genesis, you begin to learn about these two dimensions. There's a spirit world, a spirit dimension, and there's a physical world, a physical dimension. But when the Lord went to the cross of Calvary, he did not die primarily to save our bodies from death. He died on the cross to save our spirits from death. That's why he died. And so over the years, a lot of people have not really understood these things. And I'm one of them. 
that for a long time never really understood the significance of the spiritual or the healings in the Bible, the physical healings. But every one of them <clears throat> are illustrative of spiritual needs, such as the Lord healing the man that was born blind. The Lord goes on to explain in the ninth chapter of John's Gospel that blindness is not primarily a physical problem, it's primarily a spiritual problem. And the Pharisees were blind spiritually even though they could see physically. But the Lord made it very clear in that ninth chapter of John's Gospel that because they could see, they were actually blind. They didn't really understand the message from heaven. So when the Lord healed the blind man, it's the Lord's way of physically manifesting his capability in healing the real problem, which is spiritual. The eyes of our understanding he talks about it that way, the eyes of our understanding, being enlightened. That's the problem. When it comes to leprosy and the Lord healing the leper, the leper leprosy is, was a, a symbolic of sin, which is incurable. It's an incurable disease. But the Lord could heal it. He could take away the sin. And so every time the Lord would heal people that had leprosy, it was teaching us his capability to do something that's really invisible, and that is take away our sin. The withered hands, this is the incapability of man to work the works of God. That's what it is. When you get saved and you have Christ living in you, then you can work. You can work because it's him that's working in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. And you cannot work without his life being in you. That's the message of the Bible. I didn't used to understand that. How about the feet? The man that we're going to be studying in the fifth chapter that was crippled, lying by the pool of Bethesda. He couldn't walk. Well, no man can walk in the paths of righteousness without the enablement that comes only from God. He has to intervene himself into our lives to heal us all of technically a spiritual crippling disease the crippling disease of sin and the sin nature. And so when the Lord heals the crippled man, he's actually uh, illustrating what is true of everybody that's ever been born. We're all crippled. Everybody's hands are withered. Everybody is blind. How about the man that was, that was dumb and could not speak? Well... <laughs> It ought to be obvious with what's been said already that you cannot uh, be a revelator of God's truth when he makes it clear that man 
apart from God, will be ever learning and never able to come to a knowledge of the truth. So how can you speak the truth if God doesn't heal you, heal your tongue so that you've got a profession of faith that has to do with the faith of God and the faith that he has in himself to do everything. He knows all things, and with God, all things are possible. Uh, we are complete in him. Um, but without him, we can do absolutely nothing. So I think enough has been said. There are other things that could be said along these lines. But the point is, all of the healings in the Bible convey a spiritual message that does not primarily apply to the physical body at all. It primarily applies to the nature, the invisible, spiritual, sin nature of man. And that's why Christ went to the cross of Calvary. And this is the thrust of the Bible's message in terms of our need. We need spiritual healing. And so the Bible has a lot to say about healing. And um, so one of the things that I want to do in the way of just mentioning a couple of things out of the fourth chapter is because the Lord tells us in the fourth chapter that this second miracle that he performed in the healing of the nobleman's son, that it was <clears throat> actually connected to the changing of water into wine at Cana. Because it tells us in the very last part of the fourth chapter that this was the second miracle that the Lord performed at Cana. And so the reason he says that is because he wants us to connect in our minds these two events and see what it is spiritually that he's trying to teach us. So that's what I'm going to try to remind us of. Well, the changing of the water into wine is God's symbolism for uh, us understanding the method that God has designed for us to understand the water of his word. If you don't understand that part, you're going to miss it in terms of what it's all about, I do believe. Because the water is a picture of the Bible and how that the Bible in and of itself is not going to bring joy, which is what wine is a symbol of. It's not going to bring joy into your life until you understand it. And that's why one of the most important verses in all the Word of God to me is First uh, John chapter 5, verse 20. And we know that the Son of God has come and has given us an understanding and has given us an understanding that we may know Him that is true and we are in Him that is true, even in His Son, Jesus Christ. This is the true God and eternal life. It's one of the most important verses in the Bible. Because this is how you even know that you're saved. is because of the understanding that God gives you. 
And so changing the water into wine is, is symbolic of understanding the water of God's word. That's what it is. It's understanding it. But there are many things that happen in our life that, that, that prevent us from really getting hold of the actual understanding. And um, so there's a lot of deception that, that goes on in terms of, of what is involved in actually getting saved. That, that's why um, last Sunday decided to jump back into Hebrews 6 again so that we can learn from the Word of God how you can know that you have eternal life, how that you can know it. Well, the Lord wants us to understand how we can really know it, so he, he developed it for us by those two immutable things, the promise and the oath. Well, we're not going to go back into all of that, but um, when we read that the second miracle that the Lord performed uh, at Cana was uh, the healing of the nobleman's son, the Lord wants us to connect these two events, the changing of the water into the wine and the healing of the nobleman's son. But what is the point? I mean, what is the, the point? Well, when you go back and you study the passage, you find out that the son was actually in Capernaum. He was not in Cana. But the father was in Cana. And so the miracle actually took place in Cana, and the Lord wants us to think about that and understand that, and to understand that there was a distance between the Father's request and the actual performing of the miracle, which was in Cana, I mean in uh, Capernaum, which was 20 miles away. It's 20 miles away. And so... What is the Lord obviously trying to teach us here? Well, he's trying to teach us something about his attributes. God is omnipresent. He's everywhere. He has all knowledge. He has all power, and his presence is everywhere. And so what is distance to God? Nothing. He's the God of space-time and matter. He's outside of these concepts, totally outside of them. And being God, he's totally in control of these things, space, time, and matter. So when God tells somebody, uh, that their son is healed, uh, it's done right there on the spot at every moment. And the fact that the sun was 20 miles away had no bearing whatsoever on the working of this miracle. But the, the nobleman thought that the Lord had to come down to where his son was to heal him. And that's what the request was. If you go back and read it, you'll see that that's what the deal is. Uh, come, if you'll just come down, uh, you, can, you can heal my son. In the, in the nobleman's mind, being healed 
from his perspective, because we are creatures of space, time, and matter. We, we live in this world where distance is very important, but not to God. And so in the nobleman's mind, for the Lord to actually heal him, he had to come down there and, and do it, put his hands on whatever. And the passage is designed to teach us that that's not necessary at all. So this helps us to learn a little something about the nature of this amazing God that created the worlds. And he wants us to see him the way he is in terms of his deity, in terms of what these terms mean and should mean to us. <clears throat> and so there were a number of of cases in the Bible where proximity to the healing seemed to be important to the the uh, the the people who wanted the Lord to do these things. And one case in point is uh, is Martha. You remember when Lazarus died. Uh, Martha goes out and she finally finds him after four days. Lazarus had been buried and been in the ground for four days, or in the cave for four days, or the tomb, whatever you want to call it. And uh, Martha's remark was, if thou hadst been here, uh, Lazarus would not have died. Why does the Lord put that in the scripture? Because we're, we live in this dimension of space, time, and matter, and we think that God is somehow or other limited the same way that we are, and he couldn't do anything about this situation because he had been gone for four days, and they didn't even know for sure exactly where he was, or at least when he, well, he did, and they sent somebody to tell him to come, but he didn't come. He didn't come at all. Because space, time, and matter doesn't, is not a problem to him. He's the God of these things. But that's what the Lord wants us to enter into. He's the God of these things. And so Martha said, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. That's a sad level of understanding about our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. The same thing was true in the case with J. Iris's daughter. Now, we're not going to go back and look at all that. How about the woman with the issue of blood? She, she said to herself, if I can just touch the hem of his garment, if I can get close to him, then I can be healed. Why did the Lord put that in there? Because in our world, the way we live and think, we think that proximity to the Lord physically is critical if we're going to receive the benefit. That's not true. It's not what the Bible teaches. And then in the case with the nobleman's son here, you know, if you don't come down, 
my son is going to die, so you got to come down. So proximity to where Christ is is something that the Lord is trying to impress on us in numerous passages. But then in Luke chapter 7, you run into something that calls the God of heaven to stop and completely marvel at what he experienced with the centurion, the centurion, who had a sick servant. He was just a sick servant. And the centurion sends these uh, servants of his to tell the Lord uh, literally to just speak a word and his servant would be healed. He sends word to him that he's not worthy that he should come at all in terms of proximity to do this thing. He had an understanding it came from God about God. And he understood something that is really the design of, of so many of these passages on healing. And that is God doesn't have to be close by at all to heal somebody. That was true then and it's true today. The Lord wants us to understand something about omnipresence. He wants us to understand that he knows our thoughts before we even think them. He sure does. He's amazing. And that's why the Bible talks about the glory of God. Because that word means incomparable. There's no one to compare to him in anything. He's, just, he's so amazing. And he wants us to see that. He wants us to see how amazing he is as the creator, as the one who promises to give everlasting life to people who will just come to know him and understand, that's the key word, understand his word and believe it. Believe it. Well, understanding it is required to really believe it. That's what belief is made out of, is, is an understanding. It's knowledge that cannot be taken away from. And so the centurion said, Lord, you just speak a word, and my servant shall be healed. And the Lord stopped right there. And the Bible says that he marveled. And he said, so great faith, so great faith, have I not found, no, not in Israel. Folks, when you read Luke chapter 7, and you read that passage, you need to stop right there and put a big asterisk there beside of it, and just feast on it a while, and understand how precious that was to the Lord to finally find one person out of the whole house of Israel. And of course, he was a Gentile. 
He didn't find it among his people. He found it in one Gentile that had an understanding. He sure did. And the thing that caused the Lord to stop and marvel was the fact that he finally found somebody that believed in the power of his word. Power of his word. And guess what? We've got it right here. The word of God and the power of it. The power of the word of God. And, and as we've learned in recent studies, it's not human faith that's the focus of the scriptures. It's the faith that God has in himself to do what he said he would do. The centurion understood that, but I'll tell you what, there's a multitude that go to church every day in this nation and the world that absolutely do not get it. Do not get it. And the reason is because they're trying to, to work up the faith that it eventually becomes strong enough to actually believe God and believe what he said concerning that individual's future. Eternal life. Eternal life? Well, eternal life is that in the future. But as we've sought to understand, if we do not, in our human condition, with earthly faith and earthly wisdom, know what tomorrow may bring, then how in the world can a person enter into the doctrine of eternal security, which has to do with the eternal future? And we can't even handle five minutes from now, a minute from now. We don't know what's going to happen. We know nothing about the future. And so how can you enter into eternal security concerning that day that you're going to stand before the holy God to find out if you're even saved? Well, I'll tell you what it is. Listen. I hope we don't ever forget this. Human faith is nothing in the world but a cosmic gamble. That's all it is. And man by nature is gambling that his good works and a loving God is going to be what's primarily needed to keep him from going to hell. But we're not going to have to ultimately know until we're there and the Lord actually weighs the good and the bad and makes the pronouncement, well, come on in. I'm not going to condemn you. I'm not going to condemn you. Folks, as I understand the message of this Bible, if you sin in one point, you're on your way to hell. When I understand the message of this book, I'm telling you, I think I do. You have to be perfect to go to heaven. <laughs> I 
How are you going to reach that? Perfection. How are you going to do that? How are you going to satisfy the requirement of being holy, unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight? How are you going to get there? I am so thankful that I have an understanding of the answer. And it's not wrong. It's in the book. God has to give you his life as a gift. And that life that he gives us has all of those perfections of holiness. He never broke the law in one point. He never did. Well, when we have his life, then we're not either. There's no leaven in us whatsoever when we have the life of Christ as our life. But listen to me. That's the faith of God. Not the faith of man. And that's what's so critically important. And this is what the centurion, I think, understood in contrast to everybody else that the Lord met in his whole earthly ministry. He had not encountered anything like this. And he stopped and marveled. Can you imagine that? That the God of heaven would marvel? Well, he did. He said he did. But it was for our learning. He was not surprised. He was not shocked. Listen, he's known for all eternity that that centurion would believe that way. But he wrote it in terms that we can connect with because we are creatures of, of space, time, and matter. And so the Bible is written for those that live in this dimension, this world. And so, as we've noted a number of times, there are two uh, clear dimensions in Scripture. Invisible dimension, physical dimension. There are two clearly distinct perspectives in the Bible. The perspective of God, and the perspective of man. Earthly wisdom is earthly and sensual and devilish. The wisdom from above is not like that at all. Totally different. You got the faith of man, which always had an element of doubt. You got the faith of God. There's no element of doubt in it. I'm going to tell you, when you understand these things, it'll change everything. When it comes to uh, understanding the, the various passages of Scripture, it will change everything. But it helps us to understand things that otherwise will cause us to live sort of in a in a cloud without really any clarity about many different situations that are given to us in the Bible. Uh, I, I want to I try to focus on some of these things um, a little bit more, but I want to 
bring to your attention a little book that Pastor Kelly gave me years and years ago, many years ago. I say probably 45 years ago, I've had this little book right here. It's called The Healing Delusion by Mrs. May Wyburn. You can't get it anymore. I, I looked it up on Amazon just to see if it was available, and you can't get it from Amazon. It may be possible to get it from some of these uh, special Christian book companies. Uh, sometimes they will reprint critically important books, and this is one of the most important books I've ever read, The Healing Delusion. And I want to read you just a few things out of it because it ties in to what we're studying and going to be studying in the fifth chapter as we get into this with the healing of the crippled man by the pool of Bethesda. It's very important for us to understand something about this subject and the way people are confused in this generation about the healing. You've got uh, healing ministers, you know, like uh, in the past, Oral Roberts, uh, Catherine Kuhlman, Benny Hinn. There's a bunch of different names of people that have been in our lifetime. But uh, this is a woman who got caught up into all of this and became somewhat deceived uh, until she began to go to a lot of the healing meetings, which she did. And so this little book here is a personal testimony of what she discovered to be factually true when it comes to the healing meetings and the misunderstanding of God's teaching on this subject. And so I'm going to read you just a little bit here. Um, she says, I have attended between 300 and 350 meetings, and most of them being on the platform where I could observe all that was taking place. Now, I want you to think about this. 300 different meetings that she went to, they were healing meetings, 300 of them. She was up there on the platform where everything was happening. She says, I have dealt with hundreds of sufferers before and after they were anointed and prayed for, and I have assisted the evangelists as they anointed and prayed for the sick. So she was up there being a part of what was going on. I have seen people in all sorts of conditions, some suffering from cancer, diabetes, Bright's disease, tuberculosis, and in fact, almost everything except contagious diseases. I have seen hundreds upon hundreds of cripples, some so badly crippled they could not even use crutches, but had to be carried in and out of the meetings and up on the platform to be anointed and they had to be carried down again. That's what she said. After all these meetings. 
Well, I'm just going to choose two little spots to read out of this amazing little book. She says, I do not say that no one has ever been healed in the hundreds of services I have attended. I can and do say most emphatically that I have never seen any evidence of healing. Don't you think of this? She says, I can say and do say most emphatically that I have never seen any evidence of healing. And she went to 300 or more meetings. If there were healings, they were of an internal character and not visible to the eye. Of the hundreds, yes, I believe I could safely say thousands of deaf, dumb, blind, and cripples I have seen anointed. I have never seen one healed or even definitely improved. Not one. There have been a few, a very few, who have said they could hear a little better or see a little better. But at the end of the campaign, they were not improved. Is this the way God heals? And she's asking that question. Well, that's all I'm going to read out of that little book. And now I'm going to tell you what some of you have already heard. But I'm going to repeat myself because it fits in perfectly with this and my own personal experience. When I first came to this area and was working for the state of North Carolina as a counselor uh, in the prison system, I got to know quite a few people before I got to know uh, Brother Kent here at the church, and I got involved in various types of ministries. A lot of it was charismatic stuff, which the Lord brought me out of. And uh, at that time, in the 70s and 80s, people did not really understand uh, the deception in the charismatic movement. And I was one of them that did not understand many things about it that I would later understand, and God would give me the understanding to come out from it and not have anything to do with it. Pat Wells and his wife, uh, Noreen started Teen City many years ago. And uh, I got to know him, and he did everything that he possibly could to get me to be a part of Teen City and the ministry that he was trying to get started out there. I went to a number of meetings uh, uh, where tongues were spoken and People would be prayed for for healing and all of those kind of things. I went with Brother Chubb Sewell, the attorney from Carthage. I flew with him out to Missouri, uh, Missouri uh, one time to a, a meeting. He, he was a, a guest speaker at a, a large meeting out there. It was basically charismatic. I didn't know enough about the charismatic movement to even know that that's what I was getting into when I was you know, palling around with him quite a bit. 
And I, I went with him out there, and I actually stood on the stage, and he allowed me to say a few things to the crowd. There's about probably 500 people or more in that meeting. And uh, at that time, I had enough understanding to know that the only thing that really meant anything to me was the Bible. And so I got up there and I said a little something about that. Uh, and uh, I think they were kind of glad when I got down because what I had to say was not really what they were there to hear. They wanted to hear about, you know, okay, I'm here, I've got a problem, I want to leave, and I want that problem to be gone kind of thing. And I was not so much talking about all those kinds of things. Well, anyway, I came back here, and I uh, unhitched myself from Teen City and Pat Wells and his wife, Noreen. And I eventually wrote Chubb Sewell a letter, and I disengaged myself with going with him to a lot of these things, and I wrote him a letter. And I told him that I just did not feel comfortable about the charismatic movement. And during that period of time, the Lord brought me to Calvary Memorial Church. And then I began to understand why I didn't feel comfortable about all of these things. But in that process, in that little interim there, uh, I was traveling. I had about 200 people on my caseload, and so I traveled around the first, or surrounding five counties in my counseling uh, responsibilities, uh, dealing with people in the prison system that had been released and that kind of thing. And one of my places that I stopped was in Robbins, and uh, there was a family up there, Roland Johnson, and Roland Johnson Jr., the junior and senior, they, they ran a, a drugstore up there. And they were really into a lot of this charismatic stuff. And uh, so I was up there one day, and Roland Johnson Jr. Uh, ran the Sherwin-Williams paint store in Robbins. And I would stop by and talk to him because he was a Christian. He was somebody that loved the Lord. He, we would, I would stop by and we would just have wonderful fellowship together, uh, talking about the Lord and talking about the Bible and various things. And keep in mind that I was very young in the Lord, and there's a lot of things that I did not know, but the Lord was working to some extent in my life in a very critical way that would help me in my future. And I stopped by there one day, and uh, unbeknownst to me, uh, Roland Johnson Jr. had Hodgkinson's disease. And uh, uh, he began to talk to me about it a little bit, and then unbeknownst to me, he went off to Virginia to a healing meeting. And I didn't know that he had done that until I stopped by weeks later. And uh, I go in there, and he's all excited and 
tears running down his cheeks, and no one was in the store but Roland and myself. And and he says, Dwight, he said, I have the most exciting, amazing news to tell you. He said, I went to a meeting in Virginia. It was a Catherine Kuhlman meeting. And uh, he said she gave an invitation for people who had a problem to come up on the stage and that she would heal them. And he said, I had a knot on my neck. Now, I'm just telling you what he said. And what you want to do with this information is up to you. But I'm telling you, I've got a good memory on what I was told. And this is the truth, what I'm fixing to tell you. He had a knot on his neck right here from Hodgkin's disease. And he said that in that meeting, while he was sitting in the audience, that knot went away. That's what he said. And then she asked that all of those people who had problems come up on the stage. And so he said he went up on the stage. And she prayed for him, and he just fell back, which a lot of them would do. And he said, Dwight, the Lord, heal me. And he was sitting in that paint store with tears running down his cheeks, so happy that the Lord had healed him. And I was entering into it with him. And this was something that, you know, I knew him. I wanted to believe in what he was telling me, that this was actually true, that this actually happened. And he was providing evidence for the faith to believe it. This was his testimony. About two weeks later, Roland Johnson Jr. choked to death in bed from Hodgkinson's disease. He choked to death. When I heard about it, I went up there and I stopped and I visited his family. And these people are all dead now. They're gone. But I stopped by the store and his dad was very, very distraught. And he didn't really want to talk about it. He was actually even, I think, angry with God because somehow or other they had obviously been deceived about something. And, uh, and so... That particular part of my life and involvement kind of ended right there with the Lord showing me that um, um, there were things about this book that people believe that is absolutely not true. And this business of speaking in tongues and healing was one of the greatest deceptions in the 70s and 80s in my life. And the Lord got me into this book, studying this book. And I began to learn that from the Word of God, what was being believed in a lot of churches and among a lot of people was absolutely not what the Bible teaches. And so I hope that we all understand that I'm up here 
uh, trying to be as honest by what the Bible has to say as I know how to be in the hopes that we will all study the Bible more carefully ourselves and be like the Bereans that were more noble than those from Thessalonica, a passage that's quoted so often here in this church. Because the foundation of everything is the scriptures. And anything that's going on that does not pair up with thus saith the Lord, this is, this is, what, this is where it is in the book, then you're going to start going off on human faith. And you're always going to have an element of doubt. And the Lord showed me how profound that doubt can be in the case with Roland Jr. And I didn't want to be deceived like that. And so there are a lot of things to think about when it comes to healing, but I'm telling you that all throughout the Bible, all of the healings were not to cause us to focus primarily on our bodies and getting well of diseases. It's like Brother Kent said so often, God's going to heal you of every disease but the last one, and that's the one you're going to die of. But the Lord heals people that never get saved. That's another thing you have to understand. Everybody got healed in the Bible. Didn't get saved. He went into all the cities and all the villages and healed everyone of all their sicknesses and diseases. Do you realize how many thousands upon thousands of people that would be? They don't all get saved. God sends his, his reign on the just and the unjust, on the good and the evil. Matthew chapter 5, it says that. God is good to all of us. And every disease that everybody ever gets over and is healed of is the mercy and grace of God working in their life. That's true. But just because the Lord heals you of some sickness does not mean that you've understood from the word of God the reason he died on the cross. He didn't die on the cross so that your body could be healed. He died on the cross so that you could have his life as a free gift if you would believe him and trust him for it, so that you could have eternal life, which is eternal health. Eternal life is eternal health. And he wants us to be saved on the inside and not focus on the outside because that has to do with our self-centered nature and our preoccupation with ourselves and what we want to do and how we could do it so much better if we weren't all crippled up. I'm telling you, if all of us were athletes in perfect health with muscles bulging, it means nothing to God, nothing, 
because he said, without me, you can do nothing. And so if you've got a body like Steve Reeves or Arnold Schwarzenegger, what, of what value is that spiritually? It's of no value at all. That's why the Lord said bodily exercise profiteth little. <laughs> it sure does. Listen, all those weightlifters that I used to admire are either dead or so withered up right now nobody wants to look at them on the beach. We all die. And there is no future hope as far as this world is concerned the way human faith looks at stuff. We need the faith of God. We need to, that perspective. We need to get away from the earthly perspective and see everything through the eyes of God and enjoy all that he is to us. Um, well, let's see. Where do we need to go? Well, let's just jump into the fifth chapter and read a few verses here. Well, we ain't, we ain't got time to read a few verses. Where did time go? <laughs> Maybe what I ought to do is just stop right here because what we find in this fifth chapter is, is really just amazing to think about. So let, let's do it next Sunday, Lord willing, if he doesn't come before. And uh, hopefully these things will help us along. Uh, me. Joseph, why don't you pray for us, brother? Joseph. Thank you.